This is episode number six of the My Niche is Human podcast. Today, we talk to the founder of a Tampa-based company that is aiming to develop AI to proactively assess mental health concerns before they turn into emergency states. So trying to utilize technology to help address mental illness cases uh, before they go bad. We're going to get to know the CEO of this company, Mallory, kind of just shoot the shit and have a really in-depth conversation about a couple things. And I'm going to run those through real quick just to see if you're interested before you commit to this episode. It's about 40 minutes long. So a couple things we talk about, how to be less afraid of your mental health when kind of trying to self-assess. Now that's not self-diagnosing, that's self-assessing. Are you having a bad day or is it going too long and maybe you should go seek help? Uh, We also talk about learning how to respond to friends that may be reaching out to you or giving you a call for help. So not so much first responding, but you know, how to use your language, how to uh, manage your own emotions when someone's reaching out and it may be serious. Uh, We also talk about why we believe that no medical degree is necessarily required for you to share your story about your mental health or cases of your mental illness, maybe uh, family members or otherwise. And then we also talk about how different cultures view mental illness, which this was very interesting to me. Uh, talking about stigmas and different cultures uh, really opens your eyes to what's more or less acceptable um, outside of your bubble. Uh, and in the end, everything comes down to how do we share the lessons we learn from overcoming our individual bad days? How can you share those with friends and family members with courage? and without being afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I hope that interests you. If you're interested, stick around. This is a really great conversation with my friend, Mallory. We're, we're sitting here in your office uh, for Assess Your Health. And while anyone who's interested, they can go online. I want to jump over all that. Yeah. I want to know why you're here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's your mission with all this? So I started Assess Your Health in 2015 mm-hmm. after one of my childhood friends completed suicide. Uh, she was in the Air Force and had come back and had been given about 18 months for a mental health appointment, which is just something we need to work on with the VA in general, nothing they don't know. And she started doing what a lot of people do, self-medicating with alcohol and opioids. And as friends and family, we didn't see that there was an issue. She worked out all the time. She was beautiful. She had everything going for her. And unfortunately, she was living a very lonely life. And um, one day was just enough. So uh, that happened. Then with my co-founder, his daughter had been dealing with debilitating anxiety for years. And then she attempted. Mm. And at that point, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, all right, enough is enough. How are we going to help fix this? Which kind of is naive too and in the grand scheme of things in mental health but we thought we could do something Mm -hmm. and so we created Assess Your Health and our whole mission is to help save lives by enabling providers and clinicians and giving them the tools of that delivery of mission critical data instantly and at the same point in time while we're hoping that we can help save lives we also are generating revenue for them too Mm -hmm. Um, and then additionally we're trying to really work on additional artificial intelligence so that we can help with healthcare outcomes and really trying to drive that gdp down when it comes to to Mm -hmm. the cost of what what people spend on healthcare. And when you say AI, that makes me think 
proactive rather than reactive. Correct. Right? So we're trying to get them that data instantly so that they can intervene, hopefully, before either an opioid addiction occurs or before a, a suicide attempt happens. Um, all of that is, is kind of where the AI comes into play. Okay. So you mentioned it took 18 months. So does that mean she was waiting 18 months to get an appointment? Correct. She never saw a therapist. But part of what we talk about is she had seen a primary care doctor, and the primary care doctor missed it. Mm -hmm. And it's very common because primary care has a lot of things that they're screening for, a lot of things they're looking for. And she didn't come and say, I have a mental health issue. She had a somatic symptom, which is where it's manifesting into a physical ailment. She couldn't sleep. She was having backaches. It was really coming from her PTSD, her anxiety, her depression. But she didn't report things like that, and they didn't ask questions like that. So they didn't know that there was an issue, and they didn't mm -hmm. see that she was self-medicating either. Because I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor and my doctor physically asks me how many glasses of wine I have, I probably say like one a week instead of maybe one a night. So that's part of what's built into the technology is that an iPad doesn't raise an eyebrow at you when you're kind of going through this in the office. But that's how um, they actually see it. So when I go into my primary care doctor, I have an application. It's on an iPad. I'm able to have a very honest, private conversation with it, as silly as that may sound. And we're screening for things like the somatic symptom, the depression, the anxiety, and then seeing if they're self-medicating so we can give that comprehensive report to the clinician and they see all of that. So they are able to intervene and, um, and come up with a better care plan. That's really interesting. So I've had some experience myself across the board. Mm -hmm. um, but but the, what this is making me think of is when I've been that person sitting, you know, either in that waiting room or in that, on that bed, uh, filling out any kind of, maybe it's a paper form Correct. or just answering their questions. So whether it's judgment or not, uh, whether it's an individual or an iPad, I'll speak for myself, I would still be very careful in how I answered those questions because especially when I was in high school, I was afraid to say anything that would not get me in trouble but put mm -hmm. me in the loony bin. Right. You know, I was afraid of being found out, all those things. So mm -hmm. is there consideration for that when developing this AI? Can we almost, we don't want to trick people, but can we take maybe 100 data points and bring that to an assessment versus, you know, do you have suicidal thoughts? Answer yes or no. Most people are going to say no because, right. or in my case, I would have. But can you kind of create maybe 10 or 20 questions that will get you to the same understanding of an mm -hmm. individual? So there's skip logic built in and some of that AI that is built in there that is going to give a self-harm alert to a clinician. So, for instance, when it's screening for depression, you may have answered never to a lot of the questions on there. However, based on certain answers and the likelihood and how often you're feeling certain things, it's still going to alert the clinician that they need to have a conversation with you and review the individual answers that you that you answered to the questions. So it does have that built into it. The same point, it's also going to skip over things that are not relevant to you based off of the answers that you've done. So very typical skip logic that's built in. And as time goes on, we will add additional things in there, again, not to trick people, but to get a better baseline of what's happening and that's really what it's meant for it's not meant to diagnose anybody with anything it's a severity risk so it's telling the clinician how severe the classification is and how much they need to intervene and how quickly etc 
So not a not a judgment because a big part of us is ending the stigma specifically. So we spent a lot of time designing the front end experience for that patient so that they felt like it was a comforting experience. If you look at our application online or, or see it in person, which I'm sure you will today, you'll see that, again, it's a very friendly experience down to the colors that we selected for the report. So for red, it's not a red stop sign, red, like you've done something wrong. It's a fruit punch red. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be able to engage the patient and realize that, this, again, this is not something they chose. They didn't do anything wrong. It's something we want them to know about and engage them so that it can get better. Or we can help give them the tools to manage it. That's really what it's about. Mango, orange, banana, yellow, all of those things. Look at the psychology of color wheel. Correct. Yes, perfect. Um, so I can't help but think... Uh, so, so if I may summarize, uh, cr crassly, it's a red flag mm -hmm. tool, Correct. essentially. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, is this something that could be implemented in schools, you know, for the guidance counselor for, you know, is there anything to that to mm -hmm. start doing this for kids so they don't have to go to the doctor's office to use such a tool? Yeah, we're kind of in a holding pattern with schools right now. Uh, some parents want this in the schools. A lot of the schools want it. But it comes down to the question of where does the data live and who gets the data. And in some states, and most states actually, parental consent will still apply. They have to be 18. Um, and then in, in some cases where you know this is not a new thing you hear in the news all the time, sometimes parents are actually the stressor, um, which if they are, they're not wanting their kid to be screened because they're afraid of what it will say about them, right? So we're trying to really overcome that. It's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, but um, we are working on that. We're trying to get into the higher education field first, into the colleges. We're seeing a lot of prevalent depression, suicide uh, that is going unnoticed and unflagged and de detected. So we're trying there first and then going to maybe some of the more private, smaller schools and work with them first and then try to go to the public school systems. Brilliant. I love it. Um, so with all that said, uh, you have an assessment, mm -hmm. and it's used essentially to create a red flag. Correct. So then the experts can swoop in and do their work. Right. Uh, again, my experience back in 11th grade, I took a behavioral assessment. I don't remember the name of it, but I do remember that after taking that test and having multiple visits, that's when they gave me a diagnosis. Mm. So is there, are you aware of the gap? Is there a goal to get to that point to where this tool can garner a diagnosis or will there always be people involved or are you trying to get there or are you just leaving it so separate? I think we will never replace the clinician because I think sometimes like you said earlier testing is a result of the person taking it and sometimes if they're scared they're not going to be honest regardless of of the situation and how good the technology is right we can't fool a test completely or vice versa. So I think, yes, we will get to the point where we're going to give suggested diagnosis based off of the AI platform, but we're still going to need the clinician to probably sign off on it and oversee it. And we will give a care plan, a suggested care plan based off of that diagnosis and based off of the specific answers of that individual and maybe some of the other factors that we know or social history factors, uh, socioeconomic factors that are involved in that. But I still think the clinician plays a really important role, but we're trying to kind of duplicate the effort so we can reduce the staff burden and still get people help. You know, one of the things that we always hear is, okay, I caught the car bumper, now what do I do with it? 
right? So I have the data. Now what do I do with it? I, I don't know. And, and fortunately, in our society, we're not seeing a lot of people going into mental health profession. And so we have a, a huge gap in mental health professionals in general. Um, that's why I think you see some of these texting apps and so forth are, are helpful for that and, and crossing over. But we have telehealth issues with the laws haven't caught up with that either. So we're kind of just trying to create a whole collaborate, uh, collaboration environment that will be helpful and we can replicate the clinician's efforts in time. Brilliant. I like it. Um, how many years ago did that incident happen? That was 2015. 2015. And we founded the company in 2015. Right away. Right away. So from 2015 until today, mm -hmm. can you remember um, certain considerations you had about mental health and mental illness, because I believe they're two separate things, versus now? Basically, what have you learned in the last four years or so? Mm. I don't know that we have enough time for how much I've learned about it, but um, to summarize it would be, I think I'm a much better human being uh, now than I was four years ago. And the reason for that is I, I did not understand what it was really like to live with a mental illness. I had probably episodic depression over the course of my life, being a teenager, et cetera. Um, but I think I was a very naive person person when it came to that. I didn't really realize the suffering, the stigma that was involved in it, how scared people were to, to even now come forward. Um, I think it's incredibly brave as, as you have done, but also just how to be a better friend and family member to people who are suffering with that and, and fighting for that every day. And it's not a, it's not who they are. It's not a label. It's just something that, that happens. Um, I always find it interesting when someone is diagnosed with cancer or a chronic disease. As a community, we all rally around them and, and say that, you know, oh, we're going to beat this and we're going to fight this and this isn't your fault. And someone comes and is diagnosed with depression or anxiety and it's kind of like, well, get over it. You're having a bad day. It's a bad day. It's not a big deal. Don't talk about it. You're going to be judged. There's something wrong with you. Or as you put it earlier, I'm going to end up in the crazy loony bin. Why is that okay? As a society, why are we okay with that? Um, so I, I have to say I'm, I think I'm a much more empathetic person to it, and I understand what kind of goes on a little bit. I don't begin to pretend like I understand what it's like to have that um, or to have that disease, just like I don't understand what it's like to have a chronic disease. I don't, I don't have those same situations, but I think I'm definitely more empathetic to it, and I've been able to hopefully help save the lives of individual people in my life because I know what not to say. I know what are certain triggers, um, and I think that we should all learn that. And that's a big part of why we started a whole separate campaign that has no profit to anything. It's just end the stigma, and it's all about awareness of mental health in the community and not just for people who have mental health Ill illnesses, but also the people who are helping them recover and helping them fight this every day because it's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. I love all that. It's making me think, think of two things. One, uh, I wonder if the difference between cancer and depression, we can see cancer. We can only see symptoms of depression, but we can't actually put our hands on it. And I think people fear what they can't see. Absolutely. What they don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, we ran a campaign once that was called, can you tell a difference? And it had two twin girls and they're on the front and they're smiling and they look equally happy. 
and just the simple question of can you tell the difference? And on the back of it were two brain scans, one that clearly was all colorful and happy and one that was gray and a dark blue. And that clearly was the depressed brain. And without doing a scan, which is extremely cost prohibitive and no one's going to do that, um, you wouldn't know. And you can't tell. And that's the whole idea of what we're trying to do is we're trying to be able to get you to have that information so that we can help you. We can help people be happier and live healthier lives. And by the way, if you think it's just a mental thing where people can just, you know, get over it, it's a bad day. You have no idea how this works. These are true diseases and you can't just get out of bed and get over it. That's not how anxiety works. That's not how bipolar works. That's that's not it. Um, I think we can all be more accepting of it and really help our, our community get better and healthy. And they also manifest into physical ailments as well. So, you know, one of the things that we really deal with is a lot of people who treat chronic disease. Over 76% of people who have a chronic disease are not medication adherent. The number one reason, they're depressed. It's actually not because they can't afford the medication. That's number two, closely followed, but it's because they're depressed. So the comorbidity exists, and we really need to take ownership in that and and try to figure it out. Our society is meant for acute care. It's not meant for chronic. So with that is mental illness is a chronic disease, in my opinion, and all my years of not going to medical school. Um, So we really have got to work together to do that. And it's not going to happen overnight, but I can see just in that four years, too, how much I think society has been more open to hearing people's stories. I don't know about you, but probably four years ago, I wouldn't have been comfortable having this conversation. Um, and so I, I do think it's getting better. Unfortunately, I think it's happening because we're losing more famous people to it. And um, so I think then it's not as scary for people to talk about. But the question is, how about we have a conversation before we lose more? I love all that. I have like a million segues to go off that. Um, But just to include our listener here, Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned you're much more empathetic now. Right. Hearing stories, seeing individuals, being more intimate with the topic. Mm -hmm. What is something that, let's say there's someone out there who has a best friend or a family member or a romantic relationship, whatever. What is something they can do if if they're kind of, maybe they lack the empathy, to be fair, because a lot Mm -hmm. of us did at one point. Right. right. What if they lack the empathy and they're just they're trying so hard to understand the other person in their life? What are some you mentioned cues and triggers and now you kind of know what to look for and you mm-hmm. can kind of simmer your own judgment and say, well, maybe there's something else going on here. What are what are some things that uh, maybe people can kind of look out for or maybe maybe self-talk? Leave it on them. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think part of it needs to be every situation is different. So it depends on what mental illness or, or what issues their friends or loved ones are experiencing. Because obviously it's going to be whether they can try to do it on their own or they need to bring a professional in. I think is all varies. Um, but I would also be really careful. I think a lot of people say, assume it's for attention. And I think that's a, a huge one I always hear. Oh, well, they're doing it for attention. I don't care if they're doing it for attention or not. They clearly still need help. And so I think that's something that you can automatically just go ahead and check that box and don't even feel that way. Um, I think the other thing is to be a good listener and tell somebody they may not be ready to talk to you yet. They may not be ready to have that conversation, but just to say, I'm here to listen and it's okay. And it's okay not to be okay, I think is a slogan that you hear a lot. Um, 
if someone is not happy 24 seven, that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with them and they need to feel that acceptance and love and know that nothing has changed. And I think key phrases like that, regardless of what you're going to tell me, regardless of what you're going through, it's okay not to be okay. And I will love you and be here for you to listen no matter what. Um, and know, as a person knowing that someone is going to love you still, even if that's the outcome, I think is a huge step in the right direction. hundred percent. If I may jump in, yeah. I was on the phone maybe just a week ago, complete meltdown, but mm-hmm. in a, you know, a, I'm talking to a buddy of mine, somebody I admire, mm-hmm. and I, I, I dump everything. I just say, hey, I'm a mess. This is what I'm going through. He's like, cool, okay, you know, I've gone through similar stuff. <gasps> and at the end of the conversation, all that said, he said, so is there anything I can do for you? I said, you know what? You just did. You made me feel like I wasn't alone. I don't need anything else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the number one gift I feel you can do in this context. People just don't want to feel alone. I think the biggest thing that isolates people is however they're feeling, there's part of them that thinks that they're the only one who understands how they feel. I think that is the gravity of the majority of these issues, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. As soon as you feel like you're not alone, it's like, oh, it's, you, I can feel fucked up and it's okay. It's the non-judgment it's too amazing. again, yeah, right? It's huge. And for someone to say, I care about you enough to drop whatever is going on to talk to you. And it could be about something that has nothing to do with what you're going through from a mental standpoint could be about the weather. It could be about a trip coming up, whatever that case is. I think it's important to know that you are their priority at that moment. Uh, you are important. You matter. And those are all things I would say, um, are extremely helpful or have been helpful for the situations when I've had someone call me and I've, I've had a lot of those. I've had a a friend who I was on the phone with for 16 hours and um, because I was too far away from him, I couldn't get to him until I could find someone to go and be with him physically so I knew it was okay to get off the phone mm-hmm. because I was not going to do that. And we talked about anything and everything, except we avoided politics because we have a very different opinion on that. So we had, to, we had to let that go a little bit. Okay. That just caused more emotion. Um, but it really doesn't matter. It was important for me and it was important for him to know that I was not going to leave him even if I wasn't physically able to be there. So I think you just have to do whatever it takes to make sure that, again, they feel loved, they feel like a priority, and you're not going to leave them. That would be my only advice, again, not as a medical professional going to medical school for zero days. (laughs) So I'm the same. We can leave this out of the episode. Imposter syndrome like crazy. Like, who am I to create this? platform on mental health so glad you said that no medical experience whatsoever but i think that what cuts through all of that and we'll leave this in the episode because i hope it inspires someone to share their story the way you get through all that crap because it's all crap in your head is if you simply share your story Mm. your experience you don't need a medical degree for that no one can tell you your story is wrong right so if if you posture yourself that way you can get through all you can get through all of this yeah, I think the passion behind it is is really important too because I think when you share your story, whether that's how you started your business or why you're living today and what's exciting to you and like we had our conversation about why you're doing this earlier, I think people can sense it, they can see it, they can hear it in your voice and all of that brings authenticity to what you're trying to accomplish and what you're doing. And while I don't have a medical degree, 
it's still, I can be a good human being. I don't need to have that to, to be empathetic to people. I don't need to have that when people call me and I need to talk to them to make sure that they're not going to do something to hurt themselves. And I will take those calls and I will do that for, for as long as I'm here. Um, because again, like I said, becoming a better human is, is what's definitely happened to me for this company. And I feel incredibly lucky for that experience. That's awesome. That makes me wonder if why some people are hesitant to have these conversations is they may be thinking, well, I'm no doctor. Mm-hmm. I can't handle or manage this conversation. So I'm almost afraid what they're going to say. I absolutely think that's part of it. And and when I first started in this, I'm going, what, why am I doing this? I don't have the experience. I'm not going to be able to do it. And we had our first, because we're a B2B company. So we had a consumer call on the phone and they thought we were a suicide prevention hotline. And I was on the phone with him until I could get him over to the suicide prevention hotline, a complete stranger. Um, yeah. Oh, heart racing. Didn't know what to do. Completely panicked. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I, we got to like change our phone number. This can't happen again. Um, I met him three years later at a, at a national conference called Hims in Vegas. And he sought me out specifically and some of my team was kind of like, oh, well, she's busy right now type of thing, whatever, because they didn't know who he was. And he had a whole conversation. We had a three-hour conversation at the conference about how that saved his life. And that it was nothing more than just making sure I was on the phone with him, just talking to him, learning more about him until we could get him to the professional help he needed. And again, didn't need a degree for that, just was being a human being and listening. Um, and so I would say to anybody who's listening to this, just be a human, have a conversation. Mm -hmm. You're not a robot. We're, we need to look up from our phones. We need to stop being so social media driven and, and have human to human contact. And I think that will actually help a lot with anxiety. Well, yeah. I mean the whole head down society, Mm. we'll call it, that's a whole nother, nother. Um, I think we're unique again, air quote, cause no one can see me millennials. Um, I think we're very different in that situation. We've kind of broke the mold, so to speak in, in a good way? way. I think in a good way. Um, I think briefly knowing you and, and learning more about you over this, how long has it been? When was Six, TBT? Five years. Yeah. Okay. Five, right? I don't know. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. When were you under 30 last? <laughs> Five years ago. Then that's when it was. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I think our work ethic and drive and determination, I also think millennials get a little bit of a bad rap, but I think... 100%. Right? That's a whole other episode. That's a whole other episode. We won't go there. But I think the fact that we're really concerned about imposter syndrome and and that we are ones to put our phones away and really see what we can do from a human-to-human contact, like we're making eye contact Mm -hmm. right now, that's completely unheard of right? Millennials don't do that. Um, but I think our, our work ethic is very different and our creation, our need for creation is, is in touch with the millennial generation. But I think we've taken it above that. The responsibility is very different. I think you feel that you're responsible for, for your company. I feel like that for, for myself as well, as well as every patient that takes our screening, I, I feel a responsibility to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a little bit different. Mm. Yeah. The whole millennial thing, that's a whole it's a whole other can of worms. That's a whole another, another. Yeah. But um, every generation is supposed to be like the lazy generation. I mean, they said that about Gen Xers. They said that about the, what's when the one in between that and the baby boomers. I don't know. I'm not good at that, but 
that's going to happen every single generation because yeah. if you even look at the English language and how that's evolved from UK English, mm-hmm. it's completely different. But Disease. <laughs> yes. So every time it's, it's evolving, it's becoming more efficient maybe, and that's what's perceived as lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of uh, millennial entrepreneurs, they're doing e-commerce, affiliate marketing, like all these things that maybe the older generations don't quite understand. So just because they're not going to work from 5 a.m., to 7 p.m. doing physical labor, they think they're lazy, but maybe they're just utilizing newer technologies. Mm. So it's the it's difference between machine learning and AI. What is the difference between uh, machine learning and AI? You know this. No. I know. Machine learning makes things more efficient. Okay. Okay, but it doesn't rely on successful outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's accuracy and, and efficiency, while AI is all about successful outcomes. It's all about the success in the end. So it may not be the most efficient, but it's going to be the most successful. It's very mm. interesting. That's the difference. I just saw a documentary on AlphaGo. They, okay. they built an AI to play the game Go, mm. which is the oldest board game in human recorded history. Right. Um, and it finally beat a world-class player. Mm-hmm. And it was all about predictability and uh, the thing I took away from the whole thing. I just but that it. has to be AI then. It was because, yeah. to your point, um, what it – they were talking about how this game is played by a computer and it doesn't necessarily play like a human. Mm-hmm. And that was the number one challenge for the human opponent. And with that said, is the AI was making moves that we perceived as mers- mistakes, but it was being so creative and it was calculating it in such a way that it didn't need to win by a lot. It only needed to win by one point. Mm. So the moves it was making was more creative and not necessarily capture the most board, but to just win maybe 20 moves ahead, but by one point. So it wasn't by margin. It was right. just by enough. Imagine if humans looked at success that way. Oh, my God. The whole definition of success. Mm. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, so with all this, to kind of tie it back, what is coming next for Assess Your Health? What is mm-hmm. coming next for your journey in the realm of mental health? And what do you think we as a society can... Uh, what can we all do to lift the stigma or end the stigma? Yeah, I think communication over communication, as I think someone wise just told me mm-hmm. about, is definitely a part of how we can as a society um, being more patient with each other, being more accepting. I think acceptance is, is a key thing and not being afraid of it just because you don't know. So I think a lot of that can be um, as individuals, as mental health champions, is really helping with the awareness because the more we educate the community and society, the more they'll be accepting and the more I think that, and the stigma will, will actually happen. Um, in terms of assessor health, and, and for me, like I mentioned, we're, we're really trying to expand our artificial intelligence so that we can add additional tools to making it easier to be able to identify mental illness and also help provide the tools to, to get help and, and to help them um, as patients and individuals. And again, artificial intelligence, collaboration tools with telehealth and really trying to bridge that gap that exists in the healthcare world for this. Um, and that's expanding globally and also getting into additional verticals, like we talked about the higher education side and payers and, um, and continue to add on it exciting countries because we like to say we're cross-border agnostic so we really will customize for any culture any experience that's happening this mental illness is a worldwide thing it's, it's, it's a not human thing. it's a human thing absolutely yes. love the way to say that that's very interesting that brings me to a new point have you seen a correlation with the perception 
of mental health and the stigma mm -hmm. cross-culturally? Do different cultures view it differently? Absolutely. So we spent um, a lot of time actually in, uh, in the South Pacific over in Australia and New Zealand and then some Singapore and Korea. And they, there were people there who were refusing to buy in that this was a problem, specifically in the Asian culture. And um, my mom's side of the family is, is Chinese, so I'm very aware of the stigma that exists there. Uh, so th there was more of, oh, we have a gambling problem, but we don't have a depression problem. Hmm. I'm like, mm, have you seen your suicide rates? They're higher than you think. You have you also talked about the the fact that people are going into your hospitals with depression, and yet you don't have a problem. And then other people are very aware of it and, and more willing to do it. So I think there is a cultural issue. I know the UK four years ago when we started partnering with Heads Together, which is part of the royal family, that was on the forefront of a lot of the people in the UK willing to accept and and really deal with it. And now four years later, fast forward a lot of people, majority of the community is, is ready. So I think we're kind of on that cliff right now of some really exciting changes. And um, of course, we'll be there to help garner more cultures into acceptance and help have that conversation. But we're also able to uh, work with them on what would make them a little bit more comfortable, whether that be culturally or sometimes religion. Um, we've we've seen religion be an issue as well. Uh, people aren't willing to allow their their families to to answer certain questions that might be relevant because they think that that's not appropriate in their religion. So we've we've done a lot of handholding with that as well. Interesting. So if I were to try to put a theme together, this is a maybe a crass summation. It almost sounds like the more people in power and the more people who are famous either have issues or accept that this is a real problem, everyone seems to follow suit. Correct. You mentioned the royal family. Mm -hmm. You mentioned celebrities. Right. That's, it's nice to maybe know what can affect, but it, it also says a lot about us as people. It, it takes the cool people and it takes the people in power to say, yes, this is a problem. Right. How can maybe someone who's out of touch with that because I'm very much about the self. So mm -hmm. you said, you've said a lot of uh, accepting of each other or looking at each other. How can someone self-accept? How can someone feel the way they feel and say, you know what, this is okay? And if I can add one more thing to that. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I'm on the phone, and I was having a shit day. I was just feeling like a piece of shit. Simple. But I remember saying on the phone, I feel very sad but I'm okay. Hmm. And it's taken me a long time to be able to separate myself from my emotion to say, I am not sadness. Me, I am not sadness. I feel sad. Right. And that's okay. And I have found if you allow your emotions to process, if you say it's okay to feel sad, instead of running away from sadness, be it through distraction or numbness, et cetera. So how can someone self-accept without Robin Williams or the Queen of England, you know, how can mm -hmm. someone kind of do that for themselves, give themselves permission? Mm. If I had the answer to that, mm. I would probably be in a very different standpoint because I'd be around going to individuals going, do this to mm -hmm. feel okay. I don't know the answer to that. I think everybody's a little yourself, bit different. Oh, I don't know that I'm, I'm, I don't know I what I that I practice what I preach so much. I'm very hard on myself. Mm -hmm. 
So recently I've had some experiences that have made me realize that um, I'm an okay person and I, and I needed outside validation in order to achieve that, which I think was a reflection point for me of saying, why do I need this outside validation? What's missing in me, inside of me, that, that makes me feel like I have to have that versus I should be okay with myself and know that I'm, I'm a good person and that I like me. Um, so I think I, I struggle to, to do that myself on, a, on, a, on really a daily basis almost or a weekly basis. And I think that's just part of having a conversation with yourself and just kind of sometimes being a little hard on yourself and saying, listen, you got to ease up. Let's have a straightforward conversation. You're not a bad person. You're not doing bad things. You're doing good things. You're too hard. There's, you got to enjoy life too. And I think just having frank conversations with yourself is a big part and taking what you would do to other people and treat yourself that way too. I don't know why we're always so hard on ourselves and and we really are. We'll find every nitpicky thing. And like you said, if I'm feeling sad today, it's like, why am I feeling sad? I have a great life. I'm not allowed to feel sad. I am. I am allowed to feel. And then you're frustrated that you're sad. And then you're frustrated that you're sad and it's going, oh my gosh. And then am I depressed? No, I'm not depressed. I'm just having, I'm having a bad day, so to speak. But this seems to be going on longer than then a few days and then you start getting in your head about it. So I don't really know. I, it's, it's a work in progress and that's okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. The point I wanted to get across for anyone that's listening is that was a really long way of not answering your question. No, I, but I love it. You went through the exercise is mm-hmm. the point and what you showed was vulnerability. And that's what I want to highlight here. So you say champions of mental health, whether it's celebrities or people doing a podcast or assess your health. What I think is ultimately important for anyone who's listening to remember or to realize is that everybody has a bad day. And Mm -hmm. it's really easy to forget that. Tony Robbins has bad days. Oprah has bad days where she's crying in her Kleenex. But it's, it's hard to remember that because we see the highlights because they're there to be a force of nature and to show you what's possible, but it's easy to forget that they're messed up too. You know, that's how they got there because they were so messed up and they did the inner work. They used it and they use it to drive. And I think one of the best things I can do is use those days to help drive me to create more change in in my work. Um, And it really becomes my personal and professional life has blended so much and I like it that way. I'm really normally a black and white person too, but it's it's kind of mixed to be a gray. And in this one, one situation, I'm okay with gray. None of the other time. Um, but I really do. It helps It helps drive if I turn that energy around instead of just internalizing it, I think is a really big thing too. Um, stop internalizing it. And vulnerability, to your point, is, is something that I think we all see. Um, we don't see it in social media, which could be a whole other podcast too because I do think – I don't think that's the root cause, but I do think it, it puts – you know, more fuel on the fire, so to speak. We only see the good parts in people's lives on social media. We don't tend to see the real human side of them. Um, and what every day is like in a bad hair day or, or a bad day in general, or someone crying. We don't, we don't tend to see that as much. And I'm guilty of that too. I don't post pictures of, of me having a bad day. I post pictures of, of motivation and, you know, I'm having fun with my family or my, my dog or whatever the case is. Um, so I think we need to be more honest with ourselves and, and the people that are around us too. 
And I think that that's a big step. I think that is the ultimate equation. How do we be, air quotes, truly authentic, vulnerable, all these, they're turning into buzzwords now, right? Right. And you mentioned we're all seeing the highlight reel. Mm-hmm. And no That's one sees way of putting it. no one's seen the bloopers. Right. No one's seen Tony Robbins' bad day. No one's seen Oprah's bad day. I've had bad days and I've just wanted to share it somehow just to show people I have bad days too. I'm not up here preaching on my soapbox. Mm-hmm. But when you're in it, that's the last thing that's occurring to you. Oh, yeah. You don't want to share it. Right. And when people, I have seen some people share it, it, it just kind of throws out uh, a dark, sticky vibe. And people are very particular about what kind of content they expose themselves to. So mm-hmm. if you're sharing this sticky, icky, down in the dumps, authentic AF. Uncomfortable. Day, yeah. yeah. People are just going to be like, oh, that's negative shit. I don't want that in my feed. And they're going to unfollow. So how do you get... How do you make having a bad day acceptable? How fucked up is that? Yeah. How, how do, so how do you cross that? And the only thing that I've come up with is trying to share it as soon as I have my aha moment. So like you said, you have a bad day and you use it. Mm-hmm. So I almost like dive in because I'm like, oh, there's something to learn here, right? Like you said, I'm seeking outside validation. Why is that? And you dig in, you want to figure mm-hmm. it out. But as soon as you get over that, then share it in a constructive way. Right that people see as more positive. And that's really, like I said, last week was a a huge reflection point for me. And I think I am doing that now where uh, my team has noticed it and my, my family and friends has noticed it. They're like, Oh, this is, this is, I like this. What is this? And we'll see how long it lasts. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, but I think it's important. I've, I, I did, I had that moment and now I've chose to use it when I was ready to, and then share it in a constructive way. Um, and I think that's also part of it, too, is that it's okay to be messy. You may not have figured it out all the way yet. It may be as you're as it's coming together, you know, and you're having that honest conversation. And I've seen you do this before on, on social media, too, is I'm still figuring it all out, but I'm, I'm ready to share my experience unfiltered. And it may not be as organized as you're used to, to seeing a post, but that's okay because this is an authentic moment and I'm being genuine and I want to help somebody, um, get through this, then maybe they they can't do it on their own. Mm. Uh, in closing, anything you would like to add? I don't really have anything other than to add, um, you know, be patient with someone today. Mm. Be loving for someone today. Tell someone that they're a priority to you because um, you never know what someone else is going through. Uh, you never know that you could be the the difference in saving someone's life. Sometimes that means a complete perfect stranger, and sometimes it could be your best friend, your partner, whatever it is. So just be an extra caring and, and patient person. Love it. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. This was Thanks awesome. for having me. This was wonderful. Damn, that was, I love conversations like that. Uh, Kudos to Mallory. Not only is she doing what she can to start, successfully run a business like all of you other entrepreneurs out there, but she's also focused on helping people and staying honest in the meantime. I think that's really important for all of us. Um, I try to do that as well. I mean, if, if we're out here sharing the message on mental health, it's very important for us to be incredibly honest with ourselves and to continue to do the work with ourselves. I see it as a social, ethical, moral responsibility. If you're going to be putting 
your ideas out there, um, I think it's your responsibility to be also doing the work so that your ideas are as clean, I guess, clean and, you know, just as honest and right as possible. Because there is a responsibility with sharing ideas because people will take your ideas and maybe try to apply them to your life. So whether it's sharing a bad day or sharing the other side of the phone when someone reaches out asking for help, it's very important that we are in our best shoes on any given day so that we can continue to spread courage and hopefully lift the stigma on this thing we call mental health. So I appreciate you sticking around to listen. Uh, Coming up next episode, um, I was very fortunate to have the chance to sit down with a family member who has had experience with attempting suicide. It's a pretty heavy episode. uh, And for any of you who have experience with this or a family member who has experience with this, I really hope this will ring true for some of you and, and hopefully help some of you who are dealing with this. So thanks for sticking around. Talk to you guys real soon. Take care.